Let us pray. Father in heaven, that prayer of a mother's heart really is a prayer of yours as well. Jesus, you're looking forward to each person in our families, each person represented here in this church to be there, and people beyond this community of faith to be there as well. May we all just be there. Help us to see this morning how we can take some steps in that process. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is entitled Ecclesia, the body of Christ. Very important part in, in this installment. And really, what we're doing is we're continuing where we left off last week, where the Holy Spirit was poured out upon a group of believers, about 120, and then they multiplied to thousands of believers. But they were still seen as that body of Christ. And so as we go to Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47, I have one question that comes to mind, and that is this. When you hear the word church, what thought comes to your mind? Body of Christ, a body? Any other thoughts? Go ahead and shout them out, it's okay. When you hear the word church, what's a word that comes to your mind? Worship? There's another one. Unity? Family? Learning? Fellowship? Lots of words. If you go on the internet, you'll find there's video clips where people say, church, when I think of the word church, I think of a moneymaker, some kind of business. And really, the state of California is starting to treat churches as, as some kind of business. But there's all kinds of thoughts that come to our mind when we think of the word church. But when I, when I thought of that question, I thought of some more questions, such as, where and when does the church meet? We think here's Sabbath morning, we've got small groups during the week. But what does a church do? Is it just us gathering in a building or is it something more than that? And furthermore, the question came to my mind as I read through the book of Acts, it talked about the church growing daily. They met together daily, they grew daily. I thought, man, what is the church then? What is, and then why did, Paul, why did Peter and then choose this word, especially Luke, ecclesia, to define this gathering that we call fellowship, family, body? Why did he choose this word that later on we get ecclesiology from and all of that? Why did he choose that word to define us as a group of believers? Because as I look at that word, you can look in the Roman government system, and this is a picture, not a very good one, you can't get a very good one, uh, of the Greek government system. You see how complex that is? We think ours is complex, but you look at here, you find here is, right in the middle here, are some different forms of government. And up in here, we find the word ekklesia, and the Greek government. That's the word that Luke uses that Jesus uses, that the apostles use to call us as a community of faith. They use this word, ekklesia. And so if you look in the Greek government system, the ekklesia was one that would vote on decrees, would vote on treaties, law proposals, it would elect certain magistrates, even military people. And when a system became corrupt, then the ekklesia would gather together and revolt against the government. And you can't see it, 
but the ecclesia has a minus there. In other words, it starts from one to 6,000 residents was what they considered an ecclesia. Called out a gathering to start changes in their government. And so the ecclesia is really two words, ek, which means from or out of, and kaleo, which means to call out, to summon. And that's what happened in the Greek political system. They would call out a group of people. They would begin to say, here's the issues we have with the government. Here's what we want to see change. And they would begin to permeate the society with that group of between one and 6,000 individuals. From the Old Testament, we learn that this idea of calling out was back in the synagogue system, where they would call people together to hear, to learn. And so if we combine these elements, it almost sounds like the church could be considered summoned ones, summoned together by Jesus to overthrow maybe even a corrupt system or a ruler. But are we talking about earthly rulers? We talk about the church. I mean, that could happen. We find in the history of Christendom that there were church groups that eventually got p political enough where they controlled the government. We find that in the medieval period. But when we talk about the book of Acts, we're not talking about that. We're talking about a group of people who have been summoned by Jesus, who are learning from Jesus, who are going to change the world for Jesus, and they are looking to overthrow not an earthly ruler, but a spiritual ruler. The pictures that we have of this caricature, this person, are just don't even give, us, give it justice. But Satan himself is the ruler that we want to overthrow. And so it's significant that he, they use this word, ecclesia, the called out, the summoned ones, because in Ephesians chapter 1, God says that he has called each one of us by name since the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, he uttered your name and my name. And so he had already saw years and years ago, before he even made this world, before it ever fell, that you would be sitting here today, that I would be standing here today encouraging you to look to him to encourage you to join a revolution, a revolt, not against your earthly governments, but against the ruler of darkness himself. Because behind all these corrupt earthly governments is that ruler of darkness, and behind every broken relationship, and harmful relationship, is that ruler of darkness trying to permeate. And so the church is summoned to battle, yes, and to go against the gates of hell, and to stand firm, and that understanding is essential to the mission of the movement then. We're the people, not the building. Because this building can literally be shut down and then would you still exist as a gathering of believers? I would think the answer would be yes. I've seen your, on your calendar all kinds of different small groups that take place, meetings that take place, gatherings and studies that take place. But you, as individuals, are essential to the movement of God's message into this world. Each one of you is important to that. So each one of you has been called and summoned, and therefore I value each one of you, and we should value each other immensely. And at the core of that church, like we had in our scripture reading, is this small group, the church that meets at the house of so-and-so, the church that meets at the house of so-and-so. If you read that scripture reading again, you're going to find there are church groups meeting, not necessarily all at the synagogue or the, the big gatherings, but they're also meeting here and there. They are unstoppable because 
their methodology has carried them into all kinds of places. And Satan, think about it, <clears throat> if he's going to try to get rid of people who look like Jesus, talk like Jesus, have Jesus in their heart, each one of you then becomes a threat. And then imagine if you have a gathering of you over here and over here and over here and over here and over here. Then the gospel is not just there locally, but it begins to spread everywhere. And yes, there will be corporate gatherings. But we're going to look at an example of this spiritual army unit in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 40. Peter was preaching there last week as we took a look at this. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. People have heard the gospel in their own language. And now, as it continues on, Peter begins, continues to testify and says, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Couldn't we say the same thing today? A message needs to be going forth that calls us together, helps us stand, helps us stand against what's going on in this world, helps us stand against the fear and all of the things that we see on the news or wherever you want to look at them, helps us stand against a crooked generation, and now we are standing not crooked but upright against the flow. That's what Peter's calling them. Then they received his word, that received it, were baptized, and they were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. Unfortunately, though, we're going to find as we look next week about the stoning of Stephen, 2,000 of the, of the people that were eventually converted to, Judea, to Christianity were killed off during the stoning of Stephen. So we find, yes, there was 3,000, and who knows how many more as they went back home, but then a great persecution will ring out after that growth. So it's amazing that this happened, but it's also amazing that the church will endure a great persecution after this tremendous growth, and they will still keep moving forward. And so the Pentecost comes along. This takes place in the upper room. Eventually you have 120, becomes thousands of them. And it's interesting because Peter is calling them to stand straight in a crooked generation, a generation in which this world seems to be shifting around rudderless. It's like a ship without a rudder. Peter was saying to that generation, there's no lifeboat to save itself. There's no port to find shelter in unless you look to Jesus. The storms mount higher and higher. The winds toss and the waves swamp. The cry grows out from the world, save yourselves, do what you can. But the voice of faith responds, Jesus saves. That's what he was saying there. Was it's like the world is totally out of control crooked, and yet Jesus saves. Not the Caesar, not the government, not these man-made traditions. Jesus saves. If you want to read more about that, you can find that book in your library media center over there. Look for a call. Uh, look at the call number 226 over there. This is a book called The In-Between God. And so the world, wouldn't we agree, is crooked and needs that same message today? Needs the church to deliver it? Church is not irrelevant. Say it's boring and moneymaker and all of that, then really you haven't spent a lot of time examining other organizations. That's what I'm doing for my doctorate. I look at all these organizations and leadership, and I can tell you right now there's all kinds of good systems and there's false systems out there. A lot of faulty things out there. And the church, as I compare the church to these other systems, I find so much redemptiveness in the church, and that's what Peter was saying. Yes, have differences. Yes, we find that we're not perfect, but the church stands there to call people to a Jesus whom we love dearly.
And so we'll review the sequence that took place before Peter preached this. They were together in one place praying. We're hoping that we'll be at least together praying, whether it's by phone or one place or whatever, you know, be in your homes. We'll be all on the same page each day this next week. They were praying, 120 of them in one place. They had one purpose, which meant they had a mission or a purpose, and they had unity. They didn't allow things to come in to divide them. Yeah, there were struggles and there were disagreements, but they did not allow those things to take control of the church. And we will have those as well, but we're not going to allow it to take control of the church. And we're going to be rediscovering our mission starting September 20. They prayed for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That was power for their mission, was it not? That was what gave them the languages to the nations that they spoke to. But also, when the Holy Spirit comes, it has a way of cleansing your heart. Out of all the members of the, three members of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit really takes on the role of a servant, just like Jesus and the Father. Imagine that. You never really get any credit for anything. You're kind of this unseen entity of the Godhead. You come and there's power exhibited, but people could scientifically explain you away. I mean, Jesus, we find, was a real human being, existed in space and time. We, we know all of that, right? But here's the Holy Spirit coming to each one of us, this still, small voice that you could confuse with your own conscience if you wanted to, but keeps coming at you, pointing you to the Bible, pointing you to Jesus, pointing you there in a servant attitude and begins to cleanse your heart, not just giving you power for mission, but begins to help you put away those old ways of thinking. And so that had taken place. And then Peter proclaims, and we know the cleansing took place because they weren't vying for who's going to be the 12th apostle. You know, they, they actually tried to develop a process for that. And then they proclaim the gospel, and the mission was carried out in several aspects of their lives. Look at Acts 2.42. It says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. Four things. And my guess is that those four things are in that little bag for the children each week. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles, and all that believed were together and had all things common. Make a list of all of these. You know, the bottom ones, as you look beyond there, down there, that from, and fear came upon every soul, many wonders, those are the results but the first four are really what they're doing all the time. They're, they're focusing on the teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and a prayer. And the results are those other items there. The wonders, the signs, the togetherness, everything common. So I made a list. You can do the same thing. So the teaching, what are they really teaching? What do they have? Jesus had said that all the law and the prophets testify of him. That's what he had left with them. So they have all the law and the prophets, the Old Testament there, but they're looking at it as how it applies to Jesus, and they're remembering the words of Jesus, and so they're continually reviewing those. It's no wonder then that we come up with the Gospels being written down eventually, and the book of Acts being written down. They want to commemorate these things that they have been learning. Fellowship. What about that? That is an interesting word, koinonia. We find in the Greek society and in Roman times, that would be somebody who knows you almost inside and out. One of the relationships it has is a very deep friendship, but also another relationship that's being described in ancient literature is that of a marriage, okay? A deep, intimate relationship. Of course, if you are married to someone and you're not friends with them, you might have a problem there. <laughs> but, but here, it's implying that 
the church had deep relationships. So they're looking at Jesus all the time, looking at his teaching, looking at all of the apostles' teaching that points to Jesus. That would help you view people differently, would it not? And then you would see them as potential friends, and you would, you would be in their lives, and they in your lives, and you would have this friendship, deep bond. No, I'm not saying that they were spiritually married or whatever. No way. It's just, this is talking about friendship on the deepest level. Breaking a bread, something that's communion, or an agape feast, which is fine, that's, that's okay, you can, you can go that route. But it, what we notice is that just like when Jesus broke bread with them, they recognized him by the breaking of bread. They, they're doing the things of Jesus. They're eating together. And breaking bread together means that they have sustained some kind of ministry together where they needed to break bread together. So they're working together. They're breaking bread together. Prayers. I mean, think about that. They're not just going to the place of prayer like Peter and John went to pray, right? Went to the temple. But they're praying, it says, continually. That's outside of the synagogue, outside of the temple, all the time. And as a result, signs and wonders take place. All these chapters in the book of Acts, we find our testifying of the Holy Spirit. Together, same place, together. I know in our technology age, we want to go ahead and be together somehow with Skype or this or that, but there is something that doesn't replace the face-to-face. -face. We could have listened to a song today, for special music. But the fact that she, Liz stood up here and sang that song, it brought me to the throne that she, was praying, that she was singing about. There's something about that personalness there. You could all watch this on the internet eventually and hear it. But there's something about engaging and looking into each other's eyes and having a relationship that is meaningful. And that takes place together. And I know our society has all kinds of ways to make sure things take place apart from each other. But there is something about coming together. Now, I'm not saying you have to come to that prayer group. It's okay if you do or you don't. But chime in and, and together be on the same page then if you can't make it there personally. There, you find it's one ge geographic location and they were able to do that. Even though they had to walk and all of that, we think that we have a long ways to go to get to a church or whatever. I remember traveling 100 miles to a little church gathering of six people and thinking, man, this is a lot of travel and all of it. No, it's not. Imagine traveling it on a foot, you know? That'd take a little bit more, wouldn't it? But coming, something about being together. They were together all the time. All things coming are things that they had belonged to everyone in their group. That one in our society is questionable, isn't it? People like to question that one because they don't want to just hand something over to somebody. But the word here is the same word, common, that you find Peter sees those animals coming down, and he says, no, Lord, I haven't eaten anything common or unclean. Same word for common. They treat, treated their material wealth as a means to fulfilling the mission, not as a means to fulfilling their selfish desires. And so if that meant letting go of it, they would try to find a way to do that. Like pork dodgers. I remember a Seventh-day Adventist convert in Lincoln, Nebraska said, the first thought I had about your church was you guys are all a bunch of pork dodgers, like the, like the draft dodgers, but you, you dodged pork all the time, okay? <laughs> so he threw this out there, and he's like, you guys just wouldn't go anywhere near the unclean stuff. 
that's what, that's what I knew about you guys. You were these health people that didn't want anything to do with pork, and I had, I had my pepperoni pizza, and, and I thought, as every time I, I, I jogged by there, and then I eventually went and got my pepperoni pizza, I said, yeah, this is for you pork dodgers. He's my uh, tax man now. He's a Seventh-day Adventist, uh, worked at Union College, great man. But I think to myself, you know what? It would be great if we would think that way and dodge the materialism that our society tries to get into our minds all the time. Through the commercials, through everything, this is me, 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 mine, mine, mine. No, this is ours if we need it. And we'd be willing to dodge materialism like we dodge pork. And so where is this, all of this taking place? Well, the synagogue, but look at the next verses. They sold their possessions and goods, parted them to all according as any man had need. You know, the poor people in that society were not necessarily what we think of today. They were the ones who did not have adequate clothing to get them through the night. They're the ones who did not have adequate food or shelter. Those, were, those are their orphans, the widows, the ones who literally would be put into some form of almost slavery or bondage without the church intervening. Now we have that spiritually taking place. But our materialism has created a whole other system of poor that, that I'm not saying we shouldn't help, but we need to help them in a different way than just material wealth. There, they would see some brother who's trying to get through the night, and Dorcas would see that he doesn't have a cloak, and there it's a Mediterranean climate similar to ours, Gets cold, there's snow on the Mount Hermon. And there's this brother shivering there in the night. And so what's Dorcas do? She lovingly with her hands makes a cloak, goes over one night. You can just imagine, it's almost like the plan of salvation. She covers this, this guy with a robe. He wakes up the next day not shivering anymore. And someone's life has been changed. Those are the needy that, the Dor that Dorcas and the rest of them were serving. And so we have an obligation to that as well. There are people who will not have a meal at times, and we need to be able to serve them. And so they would look amongst themselves for needs, they would look outside of themselves, and it says, day by day, continuing steadfastly with one accord, it's that one mind, that one purpose, that mission, in the temple and breaking bread at home. So you've got both, the corporate gathering and you've got the gathering that's in various locations so they can minister to the people around them. They took their food with gladness and singleness of heart. No one went hungry amongst them. And no... We can't go with Marx and others who think this is some brand of communism. There's no way this is that. This is Christian love in my heart, seeing that by serving you, really I'm serving the Lord. And I want to I be there in situations like that. The result, they knew each other intimately. They were in touch daily, because you've got to be in touch if you're going to know each other's needs. They met in homes, and those around them were touched in many ways. It says they praise God, have favor with all the people, not just themselves, but the people around them. And the Lord added to them day by day those that were being saved. Another way of translating it, they had favor towards all the people, not just the church people, but everyone around them they acted favorably towards. And that word is grace. They extended grace, kindness to those around them. And those people responded. What would happen if we just genuinely extended kindness to all those around us? I think the church would grow daily. So people saw Jesus through them and FBI agents, our young people. Here's your slide. Here's the answer to your question on one of your sheet on your sheet there. Those of us who have a Bible will look this one up. 
Luke chapter 2. Verse 52. The boy Jesus amazes these scholars. Eventually he goes down with his parents to Nazareth and he's subject to them. And Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and with man. Interesting, isn't that? That favor word there. Same word you have in the book of Acts. Here's my connection. The world will see that it needs Jesus when it sees Jesus working through us. The same favor that Jesus had, which is a word for grace, that they recognized God was working through him, people will see working through the church. And they will then decide, I want to follow that Jesus. And so we're not reflecting our own programs, our own everything like that. We're talking about Jesus. And so Luke 2, 52, this idea of favor is the same idea in the book of Acts. And so the people that gather together everywhere, not just in a corporate gathering like this, but everywhere, they show Jesus all over the place. They acted kindly and favorably towards everyone because they were like Jesus. So in order to be like Jesus, that means we've got to know him, which means you've got to draw closer to him. And then in order for us to reflect him corporately and in groups, that means we've got to get together and be together and meet with each other often. We read this before. So a ecclesia or a church is a community of oneness. We're one with Christ. We're then one with each other. This is why Ellen White says the cause of division, discord in families and in the church is separation from Christ. To come near to Christ is to come near to one another. That's why we have this oneness concept. We keep talking about it. Yeah, it's all the way through the Bible. We've seen that. But right here in the book of Acts, when they were together at that home, they saw themselves as one. They saw themselves as all loving Jesus. Picture a large circle, she says, from the edge of which are many lines all running toward the center. The nearer these lines approach the center, the nearer they are to one another. Thus it is in the Christian life. The closer we come to Christ, the nearer we shall be to one another. And so she uses this picture of lines all coming closer to Christ. And some of you are closer to him than I am, okay? But I'm drawing closer to him as well. And your other ones are drawing closer to him. And as you draw closer to him, we draw closer to one another. And so that time that you spend with Christ each day then becomes and reflects on when we come together what kind of meetings we're going to have together. You have to maintain that in order to maintain unity and not have any division amongst you. And so I want to be closer to Christ. I want to be a part of a community of faith that each one of us is trying to do that as families, as individuals, and as a church. So if you want to see it more in pictorial form, it was like this. Here's the apostles preaching and teaching publicly. That spreads to groups meeting all over the place. Yeah, the synagogue and at homes. And in those groups, those action units, you have the fellowship, that close friendship. You have the reaching out, acting favorably or kindly towards everybody. And then you have the prayer and wonders taking place. And so because of this unit right here, 
we find the gospel undergoes persecution and withstands it. The gospel undergoes criticism, and, sa- and people try to criticize it, and they, they, but they can't because look at these real relationships that they have. You can't criticize something that's totally valid in the human experience. They're coming together, and they are loving each other. And so that methodology is similar today. But that methodology began to be lost. We find in early 300s, Constantine comes along, embraces Christianity, begins to emphasize the professional minister standing up here talking to you. Say that again. Standing up here talking to you. Not that I shouldn't, because the apostles did it too, but, but that was the emphasis. Just the guy up there talking. He's the expert. The large buildings, some of which are unsustainable and you find if you get them below a critical mass that you can't support them anymore. And some parts of the United States, you can't even buy a building like this or land that this size to put a building on. So they began to emphasize these large buildings. And symbolically, the church was no longer the people, not you, but it was where you came to, the building. People became passive observers as the professional clergy ministered to them. Unfortunately, though, you find over the years the clergy themselves sense a spiritual lack, and who's going to minister to them if it's just them giving, giving, giving all the time? We became the performers, but that began to be undone. In 1456, the Gutenberg Bible comes off the press. Small groups begin to be formed again. Luther says, those who want to be Christians in earnest and who profess the gospel with hand and mouth should sign their names. Oh yeah, membership roster. We don't like that. Some people don't like organization membership. But it's right there in Luther's time. You go back to the book of Acts, you have members being noted in certain homes, and so there is a record of membership back in the Bible. Don't tell me you don't want to be a member of the church just because you don't want to have your name on a roster. It shows a commitment level. And those who want to be Christians should sign their names, meet alone in a house somewhere to pray, read. They did a little sprinkling baptism to receive the sacrament and do other Christian works. Now we can omit a couple of those. I don't see the point in sprinkling in a home. But we could get, you know, if we had to, you could do a bathtub baptism and other Christian works. And the sacrament, that's, to me, that has to do with the Lord's Supper. And a Baptist come along, they do the same thing. The Christian community and even the Christian connection and others, you get on down, they begin to do that as well. Wesley goes and he begins to have large gatherings of preaching. And he notices that if he doesn't get them into groups, that they will begin to scatter after he leaves. So he forms them into groups of 12 where they would meet regularly every week. They would emphasize discipleship. Imagine coming to a group and somebody asking, is there a sin that you are hiding from this group? I mean, that's one of the, after a while, they would get down to that question in these groups. It was a methodology of drawing closer to God and holiness. They grow in Europe. Eventually, we find a small group, births the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The public preaching comes along and, of course, establishes small groups all over the place. Ellen White says, let small companies assemble in the evening, at noon, or in the morning to study the Bible. Let them have a season of prayer that they may be strengthened, enlightened, and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's our goal. This work Christ wants to have done in the heart of every worker. And she goes on, what testimonies you may bear of the loving acquaintance made with your fellow workers. That's the koinonia. Loving acquaintanceship with our fellow workers. Imagine you were witnessing to somebody and they flat out slammed the door on your face or kicked you out of their house or spit on you or something. 
And there you come to this small group meeting, and there they are, wrapping their arms around you and saying, let's pray for that person. Let's pray for you, because you know what? If that happened to me, I'd be discouraged. And they wrap around you, and they pray for you, and then they encourage you, and maybe even you sh they share something from the Bible, and they pray together, and you keep moving forward. Fellow workers, that would be a blessing. Precious seasons when seeking the blessing of God. Let each tell his experience in simple words. Christ will come into your hearts. By this means that you can maintain your integrity. These meetings should be most precious, like a united family. That, you can't get any closer than that. And not only that, she says, simplicity, meekness, mutual confidence, love should exist in the hearts of the brethren and sisters who meet to be refreshed and invigorated by bringing their lights together. Sometimes you feel all alone in this world, but coming together dispels the darkness and despair. And that's what she's talking about. She says even this strongly, the formation of small companies as a basis or foundation of Christian effort has been presented to me by one who cannot err, God himself. And you say, why would that be? Because it helps them be united, she says, helps them press together, helps them encourage one another, helps them gain courage and strength from each other. The world does need the church. As secular as the world becomes, it's still going to recognize that there is a vacuum there. There is this hole there that the church itself stood for and these post-church groups and countries will eventually have to fill it with something. But unfortunately, the world does not have what Christ has offered to the world through the church. So they'll fill it with all kinds of isms to replace it. As they work and pray in Christ's name, their numbers will increase. So all of us can be a part of that. So today, we can multiply, could we not? Say there's 150 or 200 of you right here on a Sabbath morning. I remember some of you saying the heyday was 200 people coming here every week. Well, that's still a corporate worship or a Sabbath school type thing. But then imagine if you went out from there, and there's 200 of you, and each one of you, even 12 of you got together, and eventually you became doubled, 24, and now you had two groups of 12. Can you know how fast things could really grow if that were to take place? And if we quit measuring our growth by how many come to the building, but actually how many are out there ministering to the community? That's what we're talking about here, these small groups, meeting for fellowship, evangelism, and praying, and those wonders will follow. That is what she's saying. Multiplication will happen, and I've seen it. In the persecution zone, if you go to persecution.com, get a persecution map. You'll see across that 1040 window that we're trying to reach, you know what's working there the best? We've got Adventist World Radio, of course, media, the small group. That's what's working there the best. You cannot shut down a small group. You could, you could take and grab the pastor and torture him and get all the, all the members' names that he could remember, but you know what? Think about it. If that church is multiplying daily, continuing all over the place, He's going to know his main leaders. That's about it. And you know what? They're going to have people trained to take their place. And you can't stop it. That's what we're finding in the 1040 window. Urban areas, we're finding where the property is so expensive, the building permits are prohibitive, that buildings like this aren't existing, but instead they're meeting in, in high-rise apartments or places where gated communities where you couldn't go in as a church member to knock on that door, but there's a member who lives in there, and they're having a small group there. You can't shut that down. What are they going to say? I mean, members bringing friends into their home and inviting their neighbors to come. That's not trespassing. That's ministry, and that's the person having their friends over. And so we find it happening in urban areas. In the rural areas, when I had four and five churches, 
I couldn't be everywhere, so we would have these small groups all over the place. An elder or a leader who I have touched bases with. And that nurtured the flock in a way that I couldn't do just by going from Sabbath to Sabbath. It's essential. And plus, you know, you're going to find there are people who won't come here to this building. But they might go across the street to your house. And so we should do both. We should have the building and the home. And if you want to know what it looks like, I can give you a, a brief training guide on it at some point. But the idea is that we meet together, we worship, we have the time for we welcome each other, we worship, we have the word, we, we talk about our world around us and pray for it. We develop prayer partnerships. We then, if we have new peeper, people, then we pair them up with a per, another person who's more seasoned and the discipleship relationship continues there. They have, we have times of food and fellowship where maybe even sometimes we don't even have a weekly meeting. Instead, we have a, maybe some kind of gathering at a bowling alley or whatever. We invite our guy friends if we're guys or ladies. We have a group that meets for more of a social outing. And then we begin to reach out to that area that we meet at, ministry partners. So imagine here we are in Anderson. We got our church here, which I enjoy very much. It's nice to see you every week. But I want to see it multiply. So instead of just being in Anderson, which I looked on your website, and I know of several small groups that meet just in Anderson and the surrounding area. Imagine we had a group over here in Happy Valley, 10, 12 people together, hold a series of meetings out there, start another small group out there, maybe hold another one a year later, and we start having 30 or 40 people on Happy Valley. And then you go over here to Cottonwood, same thing. You know, American Legion Hall is very tempting when I drove by. I thought, you know, a series of meetings right there. And then we could have a small group over there with those other people who already, members who already live in Cottonwood could come over and nurture them. And so then you're not looking at planting churches necessarily, like buildings, but you're looking to plant a movement all over the place. And so then you go over to Shingletown. We got that small group there. We find that gathering of 20 or 30 people there, but eventually they spread out and plant more. And then you go over to South Reading. You say, I'm not dissatisfied with Anderson. Let's go to South Reading do the same thing. Next thing you know, you've got hundreds of people meeting all over the place. And you say, well, where's accountability? They're talking, I'm talking to the group leaders, and that's where the accountability comes in but they're allowed to do ministry all over the place, and it multiplies. And so it goes from just being an Anderson to all over the place. That's why a historian said it this way, the strongest organizational unit in the world's history would appear to be that which we call a cell. This cell over here, the sleeper cell of terrorists here, the cell is what he's talking about, or the group, because it is a remorseless self-multiplier. It can easily multiply. It's exceptionally difficult to destroy, can preserve its intensity of local life, while vast organizations quickly wither when they are weakened at the center. You take out the leader, you take out the organization. The reason why these other organizations keep going is because they, they have multiple leaders. They're weakened at the center, and this cell can defy the powers of governments. It's the appropriate lever of prying open any status quo, goes on. Whether we take early Christianity or 17th century Calvinism or modern communism, this seems the appointed way by which a mere handful of people may open up a new chapter in the history of civilization. And just like they took the ecclesia word and it was a revolt word, we take this idea of a small group and we say, yeah, they use it, but we've used it long before they ever existed. And history testifies that this regaining of the first century method along with our corporate gatherings could change the world. And you know what? It could even make Satan's job a lot harder. 
Because there he goes about mad as a hornet, trying to go out and seeking who he can destroy. And instead of having one gathering to knock out and send his evil angels here every Sabbath to distract you, he's now got people all over the place to deal with. And he's got to call in reinforcements from other places and other strongholds, and then it weakens his efforts in those areas, and then God begins to work over there. And we, we withhold and we fight through the attack here, and we continue on in another one and another one. And he begins to get to the point where he's not just wroth and angry, but he's super wroth and angry because he can't stop it. And then we begin to call others. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Each one of those groups begins to call out to those around them. And so freely we received, freely we give to everyone, everywhere. That is ecclesia, a community of oneness, a community of oneness that calls to the world that Jesus saves, a community of oneness that says you as a world need Jesus. And we're going to show them to you. You have things way out of control in this world. And if the news wants us to believe it, they're looking at leading us into some nuclear holocaust of some kind. They want us to be so fearful. But the Bible says that Jesus saves. And he's called each one of us, and he binds us together. And as he binds us together in love, then we go out together and we bind others to Jesus. And so Ecclesia, it's a community together, bound by Jesus, a bond of love that then calls others to be bound together with Jesus. I pray that this is not only informative, but in a way I'm casting a vision. The Lord will not let me let this go. You will see a, a group in Happy Valley eventually, and probably Cottonwood and South Reading. And whether it's just me doing it, I don't care. It's going to happen. But I would love to see us all bind together. And as a mission, part of our mission statement that we'll eventually develop, something about multiplying and seeing the gospel go to all of these areas will be wonderful to see. But until then, let's stay united together. Let's sing this song that really talks about your relationship with Jesus my relationship with Jesus, bind us together, Lord. If you'd like to stand, feel free. Let's be the tie that binds hearts in Christian love, the fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts and our cares. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. When we asunder part, it gives us inward pain, but we shall
shall still be joined in heart and hope to me again. Father in heaven, we pray that we can be this community of oneness. And Lord, we want to gather together here while we can corporately. But at the same time, help us to develop methods that will be unstoppable for the devil. Ones that will permeate and bring close relationships to you. That will go beyond this building and this place to all of these areas. And will draw our hearts each week as we meet together, each day as we are gathering together for prayer, closer to you. And so that those around us will see that we've been with Jesus. And we will act favorably with grace towards them. And they will unite with Jesus. And so your ecclesia, your church will grow and multiply. And we'll give all the power, honor, and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.